for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. So if you've ever been coached by me or taken my coach training, you know that one of my favorite modalities is called ACT, which stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy or Training, in our case, or maybe ACC, Acceptance and Commitment Coaching. And on this podcast, I have had a conversation with Stephen Hayes, who is one of the originators, co-founders of the whole discipline. And today, I'm delighted to bring you a conversation with Russ Harris, who is probably the world's leading popularizer of ACT, who has taught more people how to do it through ACT Made Simple, and also um, one of the most popular books for lay people to use the techniques to improve their own lives called The Happiness Trap. So if you or anyone you know ever struggles with things like a runaway mind that keeps saying unhelpful things, maybe put downs, maybe snap judgments, um, or behaviors that seem impulsive and get in the way of you achieving the life you want. I think this will be a very useful and enlightening conversation. So without further ado, Russ Harris, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, as we said, this conversation has been four years in, in the planning. Um, and I first came across your work um, before I was ready for it. And now I've, I've been ready for a couple of years now. You are the author of well, The Happiness Trap and Act Made Simple. And you have really, more, I think more than anybody else, popularized a form of, I don't even want to call it therapy, but it, I guess it is a form of therapy called ACT that to me is like the the simplest, most sane way of helping most people with most of their issues. I, I would love to hear a little bit about your backstory and how you, you know, stumbled across this this work and then made it your own and shared it. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, four years. It's, uh, it's been a long time coming. Uh, but uh, yeah, so ACT um, stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy or outside of a therapy context, Acceptance and Commitment Training. So it's often used in workplaces and, you know, in sports psychology and so forth. And they just change the T. It's the same principles and practices, um, uh, you know, whether you're in a therapy setting helping someone with depression or addiction or whether you're a sports coach helping someone you know run out and onto the pitch and face a team with uh, you know wondering if their contract is going to be renewed in front of 40,000 spectators um, or you know helping someone in the business world perform uh, under high pressure it's the same principles it's just that the setting varies a little bit um, and so I came across ACT, oh gosh, back in 2003. Uh, I've been looking for something like it hmm. um, and experimenting with putting bits and pieces of various other models of, of, of therapy together to try to create a package I was happy with. And then when I discovered ACT, it had everything that I, I wanted already there, all assembled and it was just love at first sight it was like wow you know this this is really i mean i think you just summarized it very well it's just such a practical realistic way of 
of of dealing with life's troubles and difficulties and and making the most of of life um and uh so it was it was really it was a hallelujah moment when i discovered it in a bookstore it was like the clouds parted and there were angels flying around and i could hear the hallelujah chorus is like wow this is amazing 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 uh and so that was uh, that was almost 20 years ago um and shortly after reading the book i so i'm based in australia um uh, and uh, shortly after reading there was only one book on act at the time it was a textbook uh, written by stephen hayes the guy who created the model and so i i flew to the usa and did some training with him and then i thought i need to spread this to the world and uh, <laughs> i kind of started writing books about it uh, uh 10 books so far but uh, the the uh, the best known is the happiness trap um so that yeah i i guess um the happiness trap uh well maybe i should just talk a little bit about what act is would that be a yeah yeah i was thinking you know just first of all like what what it is for people who've never heard of it and then i'm curious like what it enabled you to do that you hadn't been able to do before or but maybe let's just yeah let's just start simply with like what 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 is that because you you just you explain it so beautifully and succinctly in your work well um so that gets its rather unusual name uh, and and you do pronounce it as uh, you do shorten it to act not act <laughs> because <laughs> at its core it's about taking action it's it's about taking action to build a better life do the things that are important and meaningful and then engaging fully in what you're doing um and so it gets its name from a key message uh, accept what's out of your control and commit to action that improves your life um which is a lot easier said than done <laughs> so mm. it's a, it's a skills based approach it involves learning uh kind of three sets of skills really so one set of skills is about uh how to handle difficult thoughts feelings emotions memories how to take the impact out of them how to let them flow through you without sweeping you away or holding you back or pushing you down um i i call these kind of unhooking skills really how to unhook from difficult thoughts and feelings so they can't jerk you around so much uh, the second skill set is about living your values your values are your heart's deepest desires for how you want to treat yourself or others or the world around you what you want to stand for in life the sort of person you really want to be deep in your heart and translating those values into goals and into actions and into strategies to to make your life better uh and then the third stream of symptoms involve of not symptoms the third stream the third stream of skills involve focusing your attention so kind of focusing your attention on what's important right here right now engaging fully in what you're doing giving your full attention to the activity at hand and it's um those combinations of skills really enable us to kind of get on with our life do the stuff that's important deal with the inevitable pain that 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 goes with living a, a a full human life and to really kind of focus on and engage in life so we get the most out of it. Mm, beautiful. Um so what like it differs from other for other therapeutic forms that I was familiar with and that like one thing, you know, is that you don't have to understand where everything comes from. right like it's not like freudian on the couch oh this is symbolizes this or my mother didn't give me that like you don't we don't have to figure any of that out 
Um, so I'm kind of wondering like what, what you were doing before you discovered ACT and how it changed how you helped people. Maybe you have a, sto a story. Yeah, well, so I guess, I mean, I was a, a family doctor, a GP, and uh -huh. I became very interested in the psychological aspects of health. Um, and uh, as time grew on, well, so I became very interested in the psychological aspects of health and well-being. Uh, as a GP, you, you know, the vast majority of stuff that you deal with has a significant psychological component. I mean, even when you just get run down with the flu, it's most likely to happen when you're very, very stressed. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I think in, in most, if not all Western countries, there's an over-medicalization of, of health issues. There's so much focus on writing the prescription and making the diagnosis that very often the psychological side of uh, medical problems is, is, is diminished uh, or, or forgotten about or trivialized. Um, and so uh, I became very, very interested in those psychological aspects of health and well-being. Um, at the same time, I was in my own life uh, pretty depressed. You know, here I was, a young doctor, I'd kind of ticked all the boxes, followed the rules, uh, you know, kind of got this job with status and meaning, and uh, and yet I was miserable, um, and I was very anxious, very depressed, and I was wondering, you know, why am I like this? You know, so then. You know, everything in, in our society told us, you know, work hard, get those grades, get a good job, get a good income, and, and then you'll be happy. And I wasn't happy. So uh, I started uh, reading various self-help books and uh, turning to various, uh, you know, aspects of personal growth to see if I could cope with my own depression and anxiety. And those kind of interests uh, led me to start training as a therapist, uh, I gradually I started to cut down the amount of medical practice that I was doing and started to, uh, uh, as a, a sideline, uh, do counseling and therapy. And gradually over the space of a couple of years, the, <laughs> the medical practice reduced and reduced and reduced and the kind of therapy side of things took over. And um, eventually I just said goodbye to uh, practicing as a, as a medical doctor and just became a, a full-time therapist and coach. Um, and uh, and that was interesting because my income plummeted. <laughs> you make a lot more money as a, as a family doctor than you do as a, a coach or therapist. Uh, um, but uh, while my income plummeted, my, my satisfaction uh, in my work went up and up and up. Um, and so at the same time as kind of doing this stuff with uh, clients, I was also working on myself and trying numerous different approaches to see what was going to help me with my depression and my anxiety. And I found lots of bits and pieces from various models that were helpful for various things at various times, but I was uh, still hadn't found a package that kind of pulled together all the stuff that I liked and left out all the bits that I found didn't work or work for me. Um, so we, we, you know, condensed, uh, probably about six or seven years together into, into that little spiel there. Uh, and really finding act was, was where it all came together. It enabled me to, uh, deal with my own anxiety much better. May enable me to kind of uh, rapidly take the power and impact out of all my kind of self-critical, self-judgmental thoughts, um, mm -hmm. and uh, enable me to kind of massively enhance the, the kind of meaning of fulfillment in my life. Um, 
So uh, <laughs> I fell in love with it and, and the love affair continues uh, almost 20 years later. So what, what was like your go-to uh, unhooking technique for like, you know, ex acceptance, for dealing, handling all the difficult internal experiences? Well, gosh, um, I mean, probably the simplest, the easiest unhooking technique uh, to teach people is just the non-judgmental noticing and naming of uh, the thoughts and feelings that are, are hooking them. Um, so, for example, you know, the, the thought pops up in your head, you know, I'm a loser and a very simple noticing and naming technique is to go, ah, I'm having the thought that I'm a loser or there's my mind telling me I'm a loser or there's mm. the loser story showing up. And this kind of simple practice of, of noticing and naming your thoughts, um, <laughs> for, it, it's quite quite powerful for a lot of people. It instantly kind of uh, takes the impact out of them. Like, oh, I'm a loser. Oh, I'm having the thought that I'm a loser. Uh, you can go a step further. I notice I'm having the thought that I'm a loser. And if you mm. practice this a bit, then it, it becomes very quick. Uh, you realize that story is showing up in your head and you just kind of acknowledge it's there a bit like you might nod at someone you recognize walking down the street. Um, uh, and, you know, ah, there it is again. Ah, there's the not good enough story. Um, another kind of um, uh, popular method for unhooking from thoughts is uh, is thanking your mind. So whatever your mind says, no matter how mean or nasty or hurtful or judgmental it is, just with a sense of humor. And it's got to be done with a sense of humor, a sense of playfulness. You thank your mind for that. Oh, thanks, mind. Thanks for sharing, you know, uh, 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 and um, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, you, you know, uh, if your mind replies, well, you can use that unhooking technique, but you're still a loser. You're still an idiot. Ah, oh, thanks, mind. Thanks for sharing. You know, <laughs> you, you don't buy into it. So you're not agreeing with it. You're not saying, yes, you're right. I'm a loser, but you're not fighting with it. You're not arguing with it. You're just going, oh, okay. That's what my mind is giving me right now. A bit like you might handle a, a provocative teenager who's saying things deliberately try to get a reaction from you yeah, well you know thanks for sharing <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, I, I always kind of get a little bit concerned talking about these things on podcasts because you know I'm just describing uh, methods and people actually need to try them and practice them to really understand and experience what it's uh, what it's like um, but uh, what I can say is that these, uh, you know, simple methods uh, often give people profound relief from their thoughts without actually getting rid of the thoughts or making them go away. It's like the thought's still there, but I start to see that this thought is a construction of words in my head. And in this model, we, we don't really ever get concerned about whether thoughts are true or false. What we're interested in is, are they helpful? So if I let these thoughts guide what I do, if I let them guide my actions, um, if I uh, listen into them, are they giving me something useful and helpful that's going to help me make my life better, improve my life? Um, so there's no time spent in kind of debating whether they're true or false. It's uh, it's just a very practical approach. Is it helpful? Is it useful? 
And, you know, one of the, the key insights in ACT is we can't stop these thoughts showing up. You know, there's, uh, there's no delete button in the brain. You, you can't magically transform your, your brain into a kind of positive thinking cheerleader that only says, you know, helpful, helpful stuff all the time. Uh, negative, unhelpful thoughts are inevitable and will keep showing up. But we can learn to take the bite, the sting out of them. And we can learn to sort of let your mind play on a bit like a, a radio playing in the background. Um, so I often use the analogy, uh, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. You've had a, a radio playing in the background and you hardly knew it was there. Um, and then maybe one of your favorite songs came on the radio and suddenly, uh, you know, you were singing along with it. And then the song changed and the radio faded into the background again. Well, we can learn to do the same with our own thought stream. You know, when our mind's broadcasting something useful and helpful and life enhancing, we kind of make use of that. But when it's broadcasting all the doom and gloom and negative stuff that minds always do, uh, you know, we just let it play on in the background. Uh, and, and this is very different to trying to ignore a radio, <laughs> because if you've ever tried to ignore a radio or a loud voice in a restaurant or a lawnmower going off uh, or a car alarm, you know, you know that trying to ignore that stuff actually just makes it bother you more. So it's not about ignoring it. It's about just kind of letting it be there and taking what's useful from that never ending stream of thoughts that our, our mind generates. Yeah. So so what what do you think are the biggest um, misconceptions that we have in general about how our minds and our psychology work? Because, on you know, on the one hand, I grew up not knowing any of this and like thinking like I didn't know I had control. I didn't know there was a rudder. On the other hand, I got into sort of the self-help movement that was very much about control your thoughts, change your state, you know, like be the master. And um, neither of those was very helpful to me. In fact, they were both oppressive. And then discovering act like what what do you think? What are the misconceptions that when people understand and let go of the, that, regardless of the technique you're sharing, can help people find sort of, you know, peace and, and committed action? So one of the, the misunderstandings or the misconceptions, is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> that's that's why um, my my self help book is called the Happiness Trap because uh, popular ideas uh, about happiness um, are, are, are often misleading and inaccurate and will actually make you miserable if you base your your life on them. Um, one of these ideas is that happiness means feeling good. You know, if you ask most people what is happiness, they'll describe it as feeling good or a good feeling and in most dictionaries, there's a, a number of definitions of happiness, but the, the number one is usually something like a state of pleasure or contentment. Hmm. So if that's your view of happiness, then there's no such thing as lasting happiness. You know, how long can a good feeling last? Um, it, it's uh, uh, think of the happiest day of your life. How long were you feeling happy for before there was some frustration, disappointment, anxiety, irritation? Uh, and so, you know, if we live a full human life, we're going to feel the full range of human emotions, not just the ones that feel pleasant. We're also going to feel, you know, we will feel some pleasant ones like love and joy and so forth, but we're also going to feel sadness and anger and loneliness and anxiety and guilt. We're going to feel all the human emotions. So, uh, you know, there's this idea out there that if you're happy or if you're living a good life, you're only going to kind of feel 
positive, pleasant feelings all the time. And that sets people up to struggle with all the difficult but inevitable emotions that are, are normal and natural and part of being human. Um, and, you know, that then builds, uh, building on that is the idea that the best way for me to be happy and to have a good life is to avoid or get rid of all of those difficult thoughts and feelings or the unpleasant, painful ones. And so what happens is that pulls people into a, a self-defeating struggle with their own thoughts and feelings, trying harder and harder to uh, control the way they feel, to hold on to the good, pleasant feelings and eliminate, avoid, escape, get away from all the, uh, all the negative, uh, unpleasant feelings. And uh, the technical psychobabble name for this battle with your unwanted thoughts and feelings is called um, experiential avoidance. Uh, the ongoing attempt to avoid or get rid of unwanted, difficult thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, and so on. And what the research shows crystal clear is the greater your level of experiential avoidance, the more effort you're putting into trying to control your emotions to get rid of these unwanted, painful uh, inner experiences, actually the higher your risk of depression, the higher your risk of uh, uh, almost any kind of mental health disorder, the higher your risk of addiction, uh, the worse your performance, uh, the, the more likely you are to suffer long-term disability from any type of illness or injury, and the list goes on and on. So high levels of experiential avoidance are, are, are really, really bad for your physical and mental health and well-being um, but it, it, of course you know so many popular approaches it's all about feeling good and get rid of those painful feelings and get rid of those painful thoughts and it, there's other research that's uh, that actually shows that you know it's kind of emotion suppression uh, kind of trying to suppress or push away or get away from painful emotions actually has a rebound effect they come back with greater and greater frequency and intensity same thing occurs with thought blocking, you know, uh, some popular ideas, if a negative thought pops into your head, you, you snap an elastic band or you visualize a stop sign or you say, go away thought. And again, the research is clear that actually works in the short term to give you a little bit of relief. But again, there's this rebound effect. The thoughts start coming back with greater and greater frequency and intensity. So, um, you know, this, I guess there's just so many of these kind of ideas out there that are misleading and will ultimately uh, you know, make your life worse. But the, by far the biggest one of them is, you know, the best way to have a good life is to, is to control your emotions, kind of get rid of the unpleasant ones and cling to the, 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 the pleasant ones. Uh, mm. And I think it's much better to, to, rather than talking about positive and negative emotions, probably better to talk about uh, emotions that feel good and emotions that feel painful because, uh, you, know, uh, you know, sadness and anger and, uh, you know, anxiety and guilt, these are, are really useful emotions. Uh, we need them to uh, live our life. And so, you know, calling them negative is a bit unfair. Let's acknowledge they're painful, um, but boy, are they useful. Hmm. Mm. So one, you have the, you know, the various diffusion techniques, some of which you, you, you mentioned around, um, you know, I'm having the thought, there's my mind telling me. Um, there's also that, like, that raises the question just ontologically, like, who's the I and who's the mind? So then we have this other, other uh, aspect of, um, it's like, ex like acceptance or, or I guess, what is it like where we, 
I identify with something other than my mind. And so I, what, what, what am I identifying with if I'm not my mind? Like, where, where do I stand? <laughs> well, that's a deep philosophical question. How many hours do we have? Um, <laughs> but um, look, basically, you know, uh, you, each one of us is, is one whole human being. And we can talk about self in many, many different ways. Um, but in, in everyday language, we tend to talk about self in just two ways most of the time. We, uh, we talk about the physical self, people call that the body, and we talk about the thinking self, uh, people call that the mind. But there's this third aspect of self that rarely gets a mention, uh, this, this part of a human being that can notice your thoughts, notice your feelings, notice your body, notice the world changing around you, notice whatever you see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. Notice how the reflection in the mirror changes from year to year. You know, there's this kind of noticing self uh, or observing self, or some people call it the silent self because it doesn't think. Uh, it just notices thoughts. Um, uh, you know, some people call this the silent witness. There's there's lots of different names for it. Not, none of the names really kind of uh, give it justice, but it, uh, do justice to it. But it's a kind of... It's an aspect of us that uh, is always potentially available, but easily forgotten about. This, this, a lot of the time, I just call it the noticing part—the part of you that just does all of the noticing. You know, uh, mm. people say, "I think, therefore I am," but who notices the thoughts? You know, who notices the body that's hosting the brain that's generating those thoughts? There's the, this kind of noticing self part that's in there, and um, it can be. You know, some of the exercises in ACT uh, are around. Uh, you know, learning how to access that noticing self uh, and, and bring it into everyday life. Uh, because, uh, again, you know, these thoughts are showing up, I'm useless, I'm hopeless, I can't do this, I'm not enough of that. And we can use this noticing self part to kind of step back and say, okay, well, well, those are thoughts, you know, those are words and pictures that are, are coming through my head. And if you can see that your thoughts, uh, if you can see the true nature of your thoughts, that they're, they're basically words and pictures, then you can uh, have a choice about what you do with them. You don't have to take them as true. Uh, you don't have to. If I can introduce another jargon term, the term is, is cognitive fusion. So cognitive fusion basically means we uh, our thoughts are dominating us. They're dominating our awareness. They're dominating our behavior. And when we fuse with our thoughts, uh, it's they seem like, commands that we have to obey. Uh, they seem like very important things that we have to give all our attention. They seem like really wise advice that we have to follow, um, or they seem like the absolute truth. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, when we fuse with uh, unhelpful uh, thoughts, then they, that has a very negative impact over our behavior and over what we do. But if we can defuse uh, from our thoughts or, you know, to use my earlier terminology, unhook from them, step back, see that they are words and pictures in our head, nothing more and nothing less than that, then we can say, well, actually, I don't have to obey these thoughts. I actually don't have to give them all my attention. I actually don't have to follow the advice that they're giving me. Uh, they may or may not be true. It's up to me what I do uh, with these thoughts. Um, 
if there's something useful in them, if they're pointing me uh, to something meaningful and life enhancing, then sure, use them. Uh, but if not, let them come and go in their own good time. And, uh, you know, so, so some of the techniques in ACT kind of work on diffusing skills, learning to actually see thoughts for what they are, but others use this noticing self part to kind of step back and watch your thoughts and let them flow through uh, without getting swept away by them. Um, so coming full circle back to your question, you know, who am I? Well, you're one whole human being. There's a physical part, a body, and there's a thinking part of mind, and there's a, a noticing part uh, that kind of notices the body and the mind. And, and while your mind is changing from moment to moment, your thoughts, feelings continually changing, your body continually changing, this noticing self, noticing part is, is unchanging. It's, it's always there, always noticing, even when mm -hmm. we forget it's there. Right. And then, you know, a lot of Eastern traditions, um, that's considered like the real us, right? The, you know, the, the pure awareness and everything else is either illusion or temporary. And one of the things I love about Acton, about your, your writing about it, is I think I can't remember the exact phrase, but you're like, we're not mindfulness fascists, right? Like when I was trying <laughs> to study meditation, like I was, I was, I went around thinking I needed to be mindful all the time. And so I would be sitting down with someone, and I'm like, well, I'm going to have a mindful meal. And I turned into this weird creature. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have to pay attention to every bite or, you know, feel the shirt on my skin. And you're like, okay, like, do it if it's useful. But we don't have to, like, that's not an imperative, right? That's so true. That's so true. It's easy to get a, a bit rigid and obsessive about this stuff. And, of course, you've mentioned the M word there. Uh, mindfulness um, and uh, you know uh, it's a word that actually in the happiness trap I don't mention that word until halfway through the book um, I get people learning mindfulness skills before I tell them it's mindfulness and the reason for that is because there's so many uh, common uh, misunderstandings about the term mindfulness many people think it means Buddhism many people think it means meditation Many people think it's a, a way to still and clear your mind and uh, eliminate all thoughts. Uh, may, many people think it's a way to relax and, uh, and feel good and control your emotions. And so um, that's why I prefer to use terms like unhooking skills or focusing your attention or engaging in what you're doing or opening up and making room for your feelings and letting them flow through you. These are all uh, aspects of mindfulness, but uh, I, uh, I just, um, as the as the concept gets more and more popular of mindfulness, um, uh, the uh, misconceptions about it are getting more and more prevalent. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I tend to use this, uh, this other language instead. But, um, you know, when I talked about at the start about those three streams of skills that we teach in ACT, two of those streams, the, the ones that are about un unhooking from difficult thoughts and feelings and the ones are about focusing your intention and engaging, those are all uh, mindfulness skills. Gotcha. Um, so one of the things you mentioned right at the beginning when I, when I asked you, like, what ACT is, is you say it's skills-based. And that's one of my favorite things about it because I've had a fair amount of, of therapeutic interventions in my life, some of which have been very helpful, others which not, not so much, but they were all sort of insight-based. Like I had an aha, and now I was different. 
And for a week or two weeks or a month, I was different. And then I could just feel whatever, whatever mess was inside me reasserting itself, the pattern reassembling like a horror movie. And, <laughs> and you know, as a, as a coach and just as a human being, the idea that this is, this is, it's really not about necessarily understanding or, or knowledge or, or wins, you know, wisdom or insight, but it's really about just practicing stuff over and over again that, that sort of if being an effective human being is like playing the piano, you don't just expect to be able to sit down and do it. You've got, you've got to pay your dues. Yeah, that's, that's a great analogy. Absolutely. I, I mean, that really extends to, to any skill, doesn't it? Whether it's riding a bicycle or, you know, cooking a great meal, you, you've got to kind of put the practice in and learn how to do those routines. And um, it's the same when it comes to psychological skills. So, so many people think, oh, well, if I just have a chat about it with a therapist, then it'll all be resolved. Uh -uh. And so, you know, if you go and see an ACT coach or an ACT therapist, uh, at the end of every session, uh, they will give you some skills to take away and practice, you know, and, uh, and then when you come back next week, they'll say, you know, did you practice them? What happened? What did you find? Uh, um, so it, it's not an approach for everyone. Some people are not looking for that. Some people like to have a chat and I, I you know, I would, uh, uh, kind of say that at does give you insights, um, uh, often some very profound insights, but that's just, uh, that's just one, one, one piece of the whole approach. Right. Yeah. For me, the, yeah, the insights are then open doors to, to new actions, right. And new, yes. new, new practices. It's the, it's the taking action that kind of reifies it and, and makes it anti-fragile. Whereas I felt like a lot yeah. of my, my old therapy was pretty fragile in terms of like yes. what happens when it hit the world. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, this also links back, you were asking about, uh, uh, you know, you know, practices that, that maybe don't work so well for a lot of people. One of these is kind of being uh, logical and rational. Um, many uh, approaches out there think, you know, if you can just think logically and rationally enough, then that's going to, you know, get rid of all your painful emotions or stop those negative, unhelpful thoughts showing up. And, and of course, it's not the case, you know, and I've often, uh, you know, kind of said to clients, look, logically and rationally, you know that these thoughts aren't true, but that's not going to stop them from coming back. They will come back again and again and again. Your mind's been telling you this not good enough story since you were, what, five years old. You know, you're 45 years old now. Your mind's not just going to magically stop uh, telling you that you're not good enough just because you've had an insight into the fact that that story started when you, you know, your parents were neglecting you as a child, you know, it will keep telling you that. Uh, the question is, what do you do when I'm not good enough shows up, uh, you know, and um, uh, so it's, um, I guess, uh, you know, one of the insights that people get from ACT is into, into the nature of, of human existence, that pain is inevitable. Your, your mind is, uh, you know, I often describe the mind as like, it's like an overly helpful friend. It's, um, it's like, have you ever had one of those friends that was just trying so hard to help they became a nuisance? I think I've been that friend. <laughs> so have I. <laughs> I'm parent as well. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, and so, you know, uh, but we've all had someone in our life uh, that was trying so hard to help, they became a nuisance. And uh, <laughs> most of us have been that person at times too. And, and a lot of the time, this is what your mind's doing. For example, a mind that's continually beating you up and telling you, I'm not good enough and, uh, you know, criticizing and judging you. What's it trying to do there? It's basically trying to help you change your behavior. It's saying, you know, uh, shape up, stop doing that, do something differently, otherwise something bad's going to happen. Um, you know, you need to do things differently. But the problem is it's using those kind of really old-fashioned methods of, uh, you know, Victorian teachers that would kind of whack you with a, a ruler or call you stupid, uh, thinking that was a good way to change behavior. Um, uh, so, you know, self-judgment, self-criticism is not really very effective at behavior change. I say to clients all the time, you know, if beating yourself up was a good way to change your behavior, wouldn't you be perfect by now? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, everything that we consider that a mind does that, that we consider to be problematic or unhelpful or, or difficult, um, if you actually look at uh, the, the purpose underlying it, there's a... The, there's an intention there. Your mind is in some way trying to help you, trying to either help you avoid something that you don't want or get something that you do want. But unfortunately, lots of the strategies it's using uh, are, are just ineffective uh, in, in helping to motivate us in a way that enables us to build a rich and meaningful life. Mm. So w one of the things that's, that has changed most about my coaching since I've embraced ACT is I've really um, let go of a focus on goals and pivoted to a focus on values, mm -hmm. um, right? So like what I, what I thought was, well, goals are less, less powerful because they're in the future, mm -hmm. right? And, but, and values are powerful because you can enact them in the moment. And I think that's a part of it, but I think there's, there's other things about values that are just closer to people so you know, we always start with goals, like what do you want to get? What do you want to achieve? What, do you, what is it going to look like? And once we have that, it's almost like almost all the conversations, except for like recalibrating towards that, like a GPS, it's almost always around values. Can you talk a little bit about values in ACT? Yeah, I, I mean, values form the foundation of the ACT approach. So values are basically your heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave as a human being how you want to treat yourself, how you want to treat others, how you want to treat the world around you, the, the qualities you want to bring to your actions on an ongoing basis. Um, whereas goals are things that you're trying to achieve or get in the future. So, you know, if your goal is to get married, that's in the future. But if your value is being loving, um, you can live the value of being loving Oops. right now. In Oops. <laughs> I thought I had turned that off. Is that your phone? <laughs> um, you're going to edit that bit out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think I think I will leave it in as a testament to, to my own imperfection and humanity. <laughs> Aren't we lucky? This is all about acceptance. This podcast. Um, so uh, yeah, you know. Uh, so you know, if my value is being loving. I can live that in a thousand different ways today. I can be loving towards myself, my friends, my family, my next door neighbor, the, the plants that I'm growing in my garden, my dog, my cat. There's so many ways I can live the value of being loving, even if I never achieve the goal of marriage, even if I never achieve the goal of finding a partner. Um, and, and so 
uh, values, as you said, you know, I can live them in this moment right now, whereas goals are always in the future. So what we're kind of wanting to do is use values as our motivator. Uh, I can live my values every step of the way towards achieving a given goal. Uh, I can live my values even if I don't achieve the goal. And if, uh, you know, it's a given that we're going to uh, – there's going to be lots of goals in life that we don't achieve. Uh, we set out for and either we get sidetracked or we try and fail. But the beautiful thing is even if I don't achieve a particular goal, uh, if I get sidetracked, I can still live those values. Um, and uh, and so that's very kind of liberating. Um I don't know if, uh, you know, I, I, the analogy that I often give is two kids in the back of a car. Mum's driving them to Disneyland, and it's a three-hour car journey. Uh, one kid is just totally goal-focused. You know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Mm. <laughs> the, uh, so for that kid, it's just a journey of chronic frustration, and he's irritating everyone else in the car. You know, the second kid's got the same goal. He also wants to get to Disneyland, but... He's in touch with his values around being playful and having fun and being curious. So he's looking out of the window and playing I spy with my little eye and noticing uh, the cows in the fields and noticing interesting cars and trucks on the freeway and, you know, playing games and stuff. So he's actually appreciating the journey. He's living his values every step of the journey and it's kind of fulfilling you know uh they both reach disneyland at the same time and they both have uh, you know achieved their goal and they both have a wonderful time at disneyland um but uh you know the first kid had a frustrating journey the second kid had a fulfilling journey now if the car breaks down halfway to disneyland well both kids are going to be disappointed because neither of them got to achieve their goal but at least the second kid had a fulfilling journey up to that point. And when the, you know, the pickup truck is towing them home and, you know, they're, they're sitting up in the front of the pickup truck with the driver, you know, the first kid is, it's not fair. I want to go to Disneyland. When's my car going to be fixed? When are we going to go to Disneyland? You know, whereas the second kid's like, okay, well, it's kind of cool being up here in the front of a pickup truck. Yeah, I missed out <laughs> on Disneyland, but wow, this is kind of a different view. You know, it was so much higher than the rest of the traffic. And again, kind of noticing what he can see and being playful and being curious and, uh, you know, living his values. So the values-focused life uh, is much more fulfilling and much more rewarding because we, we get to live our values every step of the way towards achieving our goals. If, if we don't achieve our goals, we still get to live our values. And our values can actually motivate us to do the hard work uh, that's necessary for those more difficult, challenging goals. Mm. So I want to um, take that sort of you know, the, the, the Disney story and kind of segue the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is your recent work on ACT and trauma, right? Which, um, like, so the other, the other thing that has effect, has impacted my coaching more than anything else is polyvagal theory, Stephen Porges. And I know that, you know, you bring in some of that. So I'm thinking about the two kids. Um, one of them, I'm, I'm, I'm telling myself is, they're both, they're, their values are both sort of playful, new experience, novelty, fun, curiosity. And that's why they're going to Disney. Like if they weren't into that, neither one would want to, would want to go to the theme park. Um, the one who is in sort of social engagement, who's like neurologically, um, 
you know, sort of feel safe in their body, in the situation, and in the world in general, is able to see opportunities for playfulness, curiosity, novelty seeking, <clears throat> whereas the one who's in, let's say, fight or flight, you know, attack or avoid, simply can't. And the two kids might, like, swap, like, from one way, like, you know, it could be a state or it could just be, like, um, you know, like one of them is in that because of something that happened, their dad yelled at them in the morning or they got a bad grade or, 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 or something. How do you see ACT um, informing and being informed by whether it's about polyvagal theory in specific or just like the nervous system that's below sort of conscious cognitive thought? How do, how do they play together? Yeah, well, so I think... I like to talk about a, a window of flexibility. So when we're in fight or flight mode, that typically gives rise to emotions that the fight emotions, you know, anger, frustration, irritability, or, or the flight emotions, kind of fear, anxiety. And if we can't respond flexibly to that stuff, then we tend to fall into very narrow, rigid, inflexible patterns of behavior. We tend to start fighting conflict or running away, avoiding. Our behavior becomes quite limiting, uh, self-limiting. Um, and what ACT does is it widens our window of flexibility. We learn much more flexible ways of responding to fight or flight mode. So I've got mm. all of those fight or flight emotions showing up, kind of fear, anger, anxiety, frustration. And again, I don't need to control them. I don't need to get rid of them. I don't need to make those go away and feel calm and relaxed. What I can do is respond flexibly. I can unhook from the anger and the fear and the anxiety. I can acknowledge there's a fight or flight reaction and I can regain control over my physical actions. There's a huge amount of emphasis in ACT on relinquishing control over what you don't have control over, which is into a, a lot of your thoughts and feelings, but also taking control over what you do have a lot of control over, which is your physical actions. Um, and I can, can't really do this without good unhooking skills, but if I've got good unhooking skills, then I can respond flexibly to that fight or flight response. I can unhook from those difficult emotions. I can take control of my actions and I can start doing what's important. And once I've done that, then I can bring my attention to focus and engage in what I'm doing. And as I do that, what happens is, you know, we, we say a lot in that emotions are like the weather. It continually changes. So if I am in a really kind of stressful environment, that fight or flight response will continue. Um, and I can still keep living my values and taking action and engaging in what I'm doing, even as it continues. But if the environment changes and I'm no longer under pressure and that stress is no longer there, then, of course, we expect the the fight and flight response will settle down and there'll be other emotions that come in place. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I guess this is one of the big paradigm shifts in ACT. It's not, we don't try to control the emotions, we control our actions and our attention, and then the emotions follow later. Um, um, so uh, it's the same with, uh, you know, so polyvagal theory talks about the freeze response. Um, if, if we can't fight off a threat and we can't run away from a threat, 
and the threat is severe, then we basically freeze up and shut down. Uh, and uh, again, we can bring these act processes to bear if we're if we're if we're kind of going into this kind of freeze shutdown mode, um, which often gives rise to feelings of apathy, lethargy, uh, hopelessness, or just the kind of urge to quit or lie down and give up. If our window of flexibility is narrow, then we will be dominated by those urges and thoughts and feelings that show up in shutdown mode, and we will give up and lie down uh, and freeze up. But if we can bring these kind of act processes to bear and respond flexibly, uh, we, again, we start to notice and name our inner experience. We acknowledge our, his freeze mode coming in, his shutdown mode. We uh, unhook from the, the kind of the feelings and urges. Uh, we, again, take control of our actions and start kind of moving our physical body uh, and engaging in the world. Then what we find is that we're no longer controlled by that freeze or shutdown response. We can actually engage in life and, and do what's important. And of course, as we start acting on our values and engaging in life, then the feelings and thoughts change as a result of that. So it's a pretty big paradigm shift from, from many models of, uh, of trauma therapy. Uh, we're talking about trauma-focused act here. Um, yeah. And um, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I wrote the textbook Trauma-Focused Act came out last year. Um, uh, what, what inspired me to write it was actually a, a protocol that I wrote for the World Health Organization back in 2015. They wanted uh, an act protocol for use in refugee camps. Uh, mm. And when they asked me for this, I was like, what, you know, this, that's ridiculous. How, you know, I mean, in these refugee camps, the, the you know, the, like the first camp they tested this in was in Uganda and like 250,000 refugees living in this camp. Um, and, uh, you know, most of them uh, uh, a kind of uh, have had multiple traumas. They've witnessed murder or horrific uh, violence. Uh, they've experienced uh, violence. They've had to leave their country. Uh, now they're living in tents or huts with minimal resources. It's it's um, uh, you know, and, and the World Health Organization is saying, well, let's give them a, we'll give them a ten hour app protocol and see if that helps them. And I was like, what? And then they said, yeah, how are we going to deliver this? Uh, uh, well, via audio recordings. What? So basically, you know, they, they get a, a group of about 20 refugees together. The whole app program is on audio recordings. They sit and listen to this two hours at a time over mm -hmm. five weeks, so 10 hours in total. There's a facilitator that runs the groups. The facilitator is not a health professional. It's someone who's just had five days of training in running the ACT group. Um, and uh, basically they teach them how to unhook from all those difficult thoughts and feelings. Uh, you know, if they're having these kind of fight, flight, freeze responses, how to respond flexibly to them, how to live their values in the refugee camp. There's all sorts of things that uh, uh, you don't have in a refugee camp. So all sorts of goals that are absolutely impossible to, to achieve in a refugee camp, but you can live your values every day mm. in that refugee camp. Uh, uh, so it's about living your values, engaging in your life, unhooking from thoughts and feelings, taking control of your actions. 
And I, I was really scared. I mean, uh, uh, because I just, I didn't think it would work. I, you know, I, I went along with it, uh, hoping it would work. But, you know, there was that voice in my head saying this, you know, it's just impossible. How are you going to help these folks? So the, the results were amazing, though. You know, they, the, uh, the World Health Organization has done three published studies on this. The first one was a massive study that they did with um, Ugandan, uh, uh, South Sudanese women that were in a Ugandan refugee camp. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they found that it, just from 10 hours of act, uh, these women who almost all had experienced a repeated um, gender-based violence, uh, significant reductions in depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. So uh, <laughs> that was published in the top medical journal in the world, uh, The Lancet, um, a couple of years back. So it shows that, you know, we can help people with severe trauma and in a very rapid uh, uh, space of time, you know. I don't know if I answered your question mm. or if I just went on a ramble. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I think polyvagal theory adds to ACT is that it helps you understand those responses. It helps you understand what's going on when you start freezing and shutting down. Um, uh, um, and uh, I think, again, that's a useful insight to know why is this going on in your body and why does trauma make your body do this stuff? Yeah, now I know we're at the, the top of the hour. I just want to kind of reflect, like from my experience, well, I studied stress management in the 90s, um, got a doctorate in it and learned basically, okay, when you're stressed out, tell yourself X or Y, like, is this in my control or I don't need my body to get involved or count to 10. And I found that 100% of the time when I was stressed out, I didn't have access to that, the part of my brain that knew how to do that. So one of the things I think ACT has helped me with is practicing so that it becomes neurological as opposed to cognitive choice. Um, and the other, I think, is that with the way you're describing defusion and unhooking from thoughts, it's like my, my own internal experience isn't as much of an unsafe neighborhood. Like I have felt like I, I can create fight or flight in myself by my thoughts that just turn into this vicious loop. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, as you said, there, you know, how many days do we have to continue this conversation? But um, we're, we're at the top of the hour. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my word. Where can people find you? Uh, one, one of my um, New Year's resolutions for 2023 is to, to start taking your courses. Um, you know, there's, your books are so good that I fool myself into thinking that I know how to do this stuff. Um, but, you know, you have a, a wonderful online presence. You're a, a fantastic teacher. Um, how can people find you, find your work, and if they want to study with you, uh, continue that way? Well, so with uh, professionals, uh, you know, coaches and therapists and so forth, um, the best place to look is psychwire.com. Um, but if it's the general public looking for kind of self-development, personal growth, then thehappinesstrap.com. Okay, great. Um, and you're still and keeping it yeah. active. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, and on social media, it would be uh, the Act Made Simple Facebook group for professionals and the Happiness Trap Facebook group for the general public. Gotcha. I'm, I'm a member of the Act Made Simple, and it's 
It's like I, I, I feel like I'm living in a candy store. Just giving out. <laughs> like, oh, look, here's another three-page um, Word document that I will totally change how I work. So it's a, it's a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful community. And people, I don't know how you, I don't know how you, ha you manage to get a friendly community on Facebook that isn't trying to kill each other. Yeah. But it's, it's a really nurturing, wonderful place. It's like this weird corner of Facebook where people are nice to each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much uh, for uh, inviting me to the podcast. It was worth waiting four years for. <laughs> Absolutely. And Hopefully, so... we don't have to wait four years for the next one. But I'll, you'll see me in one of your courses. And oh, yeah. thank you so much. Your your work is just making the world a better place in so many ways. Russ Harris, thanks mm -hmm. for all you do and for taking the time today. Thanks, Howie. Cheers. Take care. <laughs> And that is a wrap with Russ Harris. You can find the show notes at plantyourself.com slash 547. Be sure to check out the happiness trap if you'd like to apply these principles to your own life and act made simple. Or if you go to Russ Harris's website, you can take any of his uh, trainings for uh, healthcare professionals or um, therapists, coaches, things like that. And if you um, want to be coached on ACT, you could uh, reach out to me, hj at plantyourself.com, dot com. H, let me try that one again, hj at plantyourself.com. And uh, we can talk about whether my coaching modality that involves using ACT that is framed on the four steps that are the basis of the book, You Can Change Other People, that Peter Bregman and I wrote, and as well as uh, polyvagal theory, um, the th sort of the three pillars of how I coach, uh, you can check that all out and uh, we can talk about whether that would be right for you. All right. So movement news um, just got back from a fantastic weekend at Kripalu where um, I learned advanced Qigong or beginner Qigong, but advanced for me from Robert Peng, whom I've been studying with uh, online. It was great to kind of get energetic transmissions in person. I feel like it really deepened my practice and I just love um, doing it. Um, haven't done a ton of other exercise, um, but this feels like it's filling a gap for now. And as the, as the weather warms and we get closer to, I just signed up for the uh, Fire on the Bayou Ultimate Tournament in April. So that gives me um, a deadline for kind of getting back into, into running shape. Garden news, not much. Uh, it's January. So um, basically we look at seed catalogs and uh, ignore the garden itself. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, 
Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Iza Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bicorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty V. Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 